How well do for-profit salespeople fit into nonprofit development roles? I think anybody who is a good relationship builder, organized, a good communicator, can probably learn the nuances of development as long as they have sort of like that inner comp- that inner emotional intelligence that 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 sort of just temperament that does well in a forward facing external facing development kind of role so I honestly think it can be done. Probably professional fundraisers listening to this are cringing and upset with me for saying it because I think there's the sense in the in the sector and the field like sometimes that salespeople are slimy. And yet I have interacted with a lot of salespeople that are class acts that you can tell it's about the relationship. You can tell that they have a process, that they're not just trying to you know, one and done me, like it's, it's, so I think you're looking for more of the same kind of competency and temperament to, to make this work. So, so that's my take on it. Yeah. So I, and I agree, I agree. I actually know, personally know some, some people who are nonprofit fundraisers now who started as for-profit salespeople and they're doing fantastic work. So, so it, you're right. It depends on the person. I think, I think sales in general, even in a for-profit perspective has changed a lot in the last 15, 20 years about what, what being a salesperson means. And it's less so about trying to convince somebody to buy something than it is to, to helping someone figure out that what they need is, is going to be served by the product that the salesperson is selling. So it's more about information and learning how it's going to work and how it's going to make your life better and like understanding what the total sales process is and like, is the person you're talking to the person that's going to actually be able to sign off on the purchase and like all kinds of interesting technical stuff. Um, and a lot of that is directly applicable to, to, a, to a nonprofit role. Um, the only the only place where there's there's a big difference is in compensation, I think, and that's that's in in lots of traditional sales roles and many modern sales roles. Like you are part of your compensation is based on, um, like it, it could either be a commission or it's based on the number of units that you sell or it's based on the number of contracts that you complete or the magnitude of those contracts, and and in the professional fundraising world, as we know, that is like totally and completely off limits for a lot of those. Um, You can still, I mean, there's nothing preventing you from saying, you know, if you reach your, your fundraising goals for the year that you're entitled to your annual bonus, those kinds of things are perfectly legitimate, but, but there's no, you know, taking a cut of sales. That's not something that's, that's not something that's looked upon as being um, particularly ethical in the fundraising world. And the AFP code of ethics specifically says that you cannot do that. I think there's there's this perception, and I'm curious, I want you to check me on this, Andy, because maybe this isn't fair, but I do feel like there's this kind of underlying joke in the nonprofit world about, oh, going to the dark side, and oh, you're going to for-profit, or oh, you came from for-profit, or you were a for-profit, you know, you came from a, a, a company as a salesperson, and there's a little bit of judgment and perception around that that I think we need to like flip on its head because there's some brilliant minds that come from a for-profit sector that have a lot to add to, to the nonprofit sector. So 
this is one of those areas where I would love to see people expand their thinking around it and know that there are some differences, but there's also a lot of transferable skill sets. I Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think part of that is jealousy. Like, how dare you go work someplace where you're going to get decent benefits and maybe stock options and some sort of long-term incentive program where you're going to get paid for staying there for a period of time. And you don't have to worry about whether or not payroll is going to be, have enough money and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. <laughs> so like, yeah. and the, you know, the, it's so like, and we've said this a bunch of times in a bunch of different ways is not, not profits are like, that's like business on hard mode. That is, it is absolutely way more difficult to do well in a nonprofit situation than it is to do in a for-profit situation because there are infinitely more regulations. It's you, you, there's lots of tools that are not available to you. And the only benefit that you get from it is that you're, you don't have to pay tax on your profits, which to be honest, is not that big of a, you know, as we, as we slowly make corporate tax rates lower and lower and lower, like at some point it's like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that is not enough of a benefit to have to deal with the rest of this garbage. We talk to people all the time when we're, they're saying, you know, I want to set up a nonprofit to do this um, specifically like in the corporate foundation world Well, they'll come up and they go, we want to set up a new corporate foundation. Um, and, and a lot of times, like I'd say in the last like year or so, 75% of those conversations are like, why? Like, what do you, other than you think it sounds cool, what, what is the business purpose for trying to go with that legal entity? And there's no answer. There's no answer other than the ED wants one or the sort of yeah. the CEO wants one. So, yeah. I mean, it, it gets completely stupid, but I'd say like, you know, business knowledge, understanding how things work, being able to create a plan, put the plan in motion and follow the plan. Those are, those are useful. Being able to learn new things, being able to do, be flexible, um, to work with limited resources. Those are all things that can be transferable. Um, for fundraising people, I think so that some of that mindset, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a shark salesperson, you're going to suck at being a nonprofit fundraiser. Yeah. But, but, but at the same time, like I keep seeing people that are, that have these for-profit like finance roles, like jump into CFO roles and nonprofits and then just like drown instantly because like, oh my God, this is so much harder. There's <laughs> so much more stuff I need to remember. And I didn't know how to do any of this. And nobody taught me this in school. So, so I think, you know, some things are more transferable than, than others as far as skills go, but it's going to come down to just that individual. I think 99% of the time is like, is this person the kind of person that you want um, doing, doing this role at your institution? And can they handle the difficulty of working in a nonprofit? There are also, I think, cautions to give if you're, if you're in sales right now and you move to a fundraising professional development professional role, one, one piece of advice I would have is to avoid the continued um, comparison about back when I was selling whatever GE refrigerators or whatever it is, um, you know, back when I did that, or this is the way I, the approach I use, because there is this barrier or this general kind of attitude about sales versus development, I, I would caution against that because I think I see a lot of people that they're, they're literally trying to relay and, and share some, some practices that worked for them. But it, if it's not couched in the, in kind of the language of the nonprofit, I think it really is almost dismissed or kind of looked at 
as demeaning to a larger mission or cause. Um, I mean, I think language is super important. So, so really trying to get yourself used to saying donors instead of customers and fundraising goals, not sales quotas. So those, those kinds of things I think are important for the transition. And uh, the, other, the other big thing I think that is different is that in general, so many times sales is just a solo sport, right? Like here's your, you know, here's your, your big list. Here's who you're going to go out and conquer. And you're going to do everything from cultivate, solicit, steward. And while some of that happens in the nonprofit world, if you think about like a, a development director, a good part of the time, they're behind the scenes and they are connecting the executive director or a board member or a fellow donor who can be their champion with it's sort of, you know, the peer-to-peer fundraising model instead of being the one to make the ask. So I see development as more of a team sport than I think sales often is set up as. So I, so I think that's another big distinction that just if someone was making that transition, they would have to, in their head, get used to that it's it's kind of a different model. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. I think just one thing that, that I'd add is that there's there's research that came out relatively recently and I'll see if I can find it. I didn't I didn't look it up before the before we started taping, but that that actually talks about work experience in general, whether like how much work experience actually makes a successful employee. And it finds that that work experience is like not that important. Like what you have done previously is is a very poor indicator of how you're going to succeed in whatever your next role is. And it's much more about what what attributes you have as an employee and how that fits into what the new role is so 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 answering the question using that research would be like it shouldn't make any difference at all because you're not hiring a for-profit salesperson you're hiring a human that has a set of skills and abilities and if those work well for the role that you're going to put that person in you're going to be fine if they don't you're not I would love to see that research. If you find it, let's share the link. Find it. (laughs) (laughs) How do you like that? I, you know, it's a homework assignment, Andy. (laughs) Just I know you love those. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I am super thankful during this time of year, during Thanksgiving season, for all of you as our listeners, for the questions you ask that... Uh, make Andy and I use our brains some and hurt our brains a little bit. And, and thank you for that because it makes us feel more connected to you and it makes for a better podcast. So appreciate you, appreciate the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits and for making uh, this podcast possible. And of course, I would be remiss not to say thank you to Andy, the fabulous and amazing co-host who makes this uh, sound much better than I could because of all of his editing skills. So onward and upward and thanks to all of you. Stacey, can you forgot something? Uh-oh, what did you I for- forget? 
You forgot to mention the stickers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, Andy, why don't you mention the stickers? Then? I want to mention this. I'm so excited about the stickers. So um, the only way that this podcast works is if people send us questions. If no one sends us questions, then you just listen to us like do editorials for half an hour, which no one wants. So um, it, from from this point on, while supplies last, and I got a ton of them, um, send us a question. If you include an address, uh, we will send you a sticker, a nonprofit everything sticker that you can proudly put on um, whatever you want. <laughs> so so go ahead and do that. I've got a lot of stickers. I'd love to see them just just fly out the door. So please send us questions, include your address, and and I will mail you a sticker. We are kind of going old school stickers, man. Are stickers making a comeback or what? And I don't these, know. <laughs> these stickers have QR codes, right? Mm-hmm. So someone can just scan it and then go right to the website. That's right. Actually, it takes you, it takes you to the Apple podcast listing. So oh. it'll take you directly to the podcast. So if somebody's like, what's that? And you're like, oh, that's like the coolest podcast. You should check it out. Take a picture of this QR code and it'll like on their phone, it will immediately load it for them. So you don't even have to like do anything at all. In doing some funding research, we came across some information about foundations making program-related investments. How do those work? And how would we begin looking for foundations that might be interested in offering them? Mm, I love program-related investments. I think that's a criminally underused tool for foundations and nonprofits. So I know you dream about these at night. I, 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 I know you just have these yeah, wonderful dreams and you wake up with big smiles on your face dreaming about PRIs. I do. I think if I, if we had another kid, I would probably name it PRI. So, so for those of you that don't know what they are, um, so one of the things that foundations in general, foundation, private foundations and corporate foundations, one of the things that they're allowed to do with that corpus of money that they're not giving away is invest it. And so, but they can invest it in anything. There's nothing preventing them from investing it in just the stock market. And a lot of them do. They have an investment manager they, who they pay money to. The money goes in, it gets invested. They get a return on that investment. And that's a totally legitimate function for those foundations to do. So they may have to pay excise taxes on those and other things because they're a foundation and they're not paying federal tax on that kind of stuff on the profit that they're making. But they, they, there is a, a chunk of tax that they have to pay. So an extension of that foundation's making investments is something that they came up with a very long time ago. So it's not a new idea. It's something that's been around for a really, really long time called a program-related investment. And a program-related investment is an investment that they can make in something that has a charitable purpose. And it has to have an ostensible charitable purpose. It can't be like, we're, you know, give it, we're going to buy stock in AstraZeneca because they're going to come up with a COVID vaccine. And so we're going to call that a program-related investment. So that doesn't count. It has to be something that's that's truly charitable. The investment is truly helping charitable. But because it's because it's an actual investment and not a gift, they can, they usually do it in the form of a loan. So if, for example, like in, you know, a relatively typical example is if a nonprofit needs to purchase a building and they can get a bank loan and they can pay whatever they're going to pay on the bank loan to buy a building or a foundation can loan them the money to buy the building. 
call it a program related investment because it's being used for charitable purposes and they can get an interest rate that's reasonable it can be it can be zero if the the non if the foundation wants it to be or it can be all the way up to a market rate which is what the the nonprofit could have gotten for the bank and the benefit to both of those is that the the foundation is actually investing the money. They're going to get the money back because it's a loan. They're going to get the revenue from the interest because it's a actually interest-bearing loan. The nonprofit's going to be able to get that money without having to mess with getting a bank loan. And in many cases, they're going to get a better interest rate than they could have gotten with the bank. Um, you can do program and program-related investments don't have to be specifically things that could have normally been a bank loan. It can be for working capital. It can be to add fundraising staff. It can be pretty much anything. Um, and in in many cases, the depending on the foundation, the foundation may decide at some point to forgive the loan if certain metrics are met or forgive a portion of the loan if certain metrics are met. So there's an additional incentive for the nonprofit to get things done. It's a fantastic tool. It doesn't reduce if you're treating it really like a loan, it doesn't reduce the corpus of the foundation any. So it's not like the foundation's giving its money away. It's basically investing it in a nonprofit. And, and there are many cases where, where this could be a real, real, real benefit. One of them, for example, and this came up very recently, is um, the, the CARES Act funding has an expiration date of December 30th. So you cannot you have to ex have expended all of the money by December 30th. But these grants, and some of them are significant, um, are also reimbursement grants. So so the, the federal government may be willing to give you a million dollars, but you don't have a million dollars to give away, and you have to have given it away by December 30th. It's a perfect use case for a PRI, where a foundation can say, okay, tell you what, we will loan you a million dollars that's going to be due... February 15th at 2% interest, um, the, the foundation, that's, I mean, that's, that's better than a CD because if the nonprofit actually does the work, files the paperwork properly, they're getting that money right back from the federal government, probably in the, the beginning part of February, they pay the, the foundation back and everybody's happy. And we don't have to go figure out where am I going to fundraise a million dollars to be able to distribute in 45 days. So, so they're, they're fantastic tools and and I, I really wish people would use them more because they're they're really I, they can just they can solve all kinds of interesting nonprofit problems. Um, as as far as finding organizations that can can offer them to you, foundations that can offer them to you, um, I think if the the best thing would be to sort of provide some education to the funders that you're currently working with to let them know that they exist and how they work. And, you know, maybe if you've got an attorney on your board that understands that kind of stuff or an accountant on your board that under understands that kind of stuff, maybe get them involved in the conversation of talking to the foundations that you're working with to say, this isn't something that the staff just made up. It's a, it's actually a real useful financial tool that they could use for liquidity or program purposes or any kind of, you know, lots of cool stuff. I know a lot of communities across the country um, will will check in with their community foundations on things like this. Um, also, CDFIs, the community development financial institutions, because oftentimes they're you know they're looking for things to do with everything from affordable housing and you know maybe small business growth and, and people who are looking to kind of um, you know perhaps. Perhaps you have a program trying to, you know, employ or put immigrant workers to to work to start their own businesses. I mean, there's some really cool 
examples of it across the country. Um, if you go, I did a little research on this when we got the question because I'm familiar with, uh, you know, PRIs, but not nearly like Andy is. And um, a few, there's, there's Council on Foundations has some great, I mean, I think they list a multitude of examples of PRIs. So we can put that link in to the show notes. Um, foundation directory online, if you subscribe to that, or if you want to go to one of the libraries that offers it for free, um, you can actually do searches for funders that offer PRIs. I mean, I don't know of any, at least in the state of Nevada, that are doing that currently. And, and please, if you're a funder listening to this and you do that, please let us know. It'd be a, a cool follow-up um, session with you. But I, I only hear about the big foundations like, you know, Gates and Packard and Ford Foundation and those kinds of, of foundations that do this, do, do PRIs. So definitely feels like kind of an untapped niche to your point, Andy. Um, super cool. have a small board put together to start on a new nonprofit idea, and we're evenly split on whether we should just take the plunge and get the 501c3, or if we should search out a fiscal sponsor. Are there clear guidelines on why you would pick one over the other? Mm, I'd say no, there aren't clear guidelines. Um, the, the, I mean, for, yeah, we were just saying that we talked about fiscal sponsorship quite a bit on the podcast. It seems like something that keeps coming up. So um, for those that don't know, a fiscal sponsor is effectively a nonprofit organization that you are borrowing their 501c3 to do a program that fits underneath their sort of mission umbrella. So you're in exchange, you you may give them a portion of fundraising revenue, or they may require they may require annual fees from you. So, so it's it's effectively being able to sort of jumpstart your nonprofit without having to go through the process of creating a 1023 and doing all the the pre work of getting the 1023 done and and then paying the money and waiting for the IRS. So, um, I think you know the if, if I were gonna come up with some sort of clear guidelines of whether or not I'd do a fiscal sponsorship over a 501c3, it's I think the concept of sort of how long this thing's gonna last. So if it's a if it's a quick little one-off idea, you just you, know, you want to do this one thing, um, maybe maybe then a fiscal sponsorship is a hundred percent the way to go, right? Because that you know there's no sense going through the process of creating a five hundred one c three, doing all that work to do one thing and then letting it close up shop. So if you think it's going to go on for a long period of time, um, maybe you'd want to do the 501c3 instead of a fiscal sponsorship. So, so maybe that would be my one clear guideline. Um, one of the good things about fiscal sponsorships in general is that you, you then have the opportunity to sort of explain your idea to somebody who's already running a nonprofit. Um, so because the organizations that do fiscal sponsorships, a lot of times they'll do help with technical assistance. Um, they'll help you with, they won't do your fundraising for you, but they'll definitely say, you know, that's not going to work. No, you know, that's a stupid idea. Um, so, so maybe it can save you some time on, on whether or not you're completely wasting energy on creating it. Um, but, but I don't know, there's no like checklist. You could go like, like a magazine, <laughs> like you do in a magazine, like if you picked A and C on all of them, you should do a fiscal sponsorship. Yeah. I don't know about it. I don't know about that. We should make if that. If only it were that easy. <laughs> if only it were that easy. I, I, 
I see it being, I mean, if I were creating guidelines, I would literally create, I would have three guidelines. One would be the time, the timing thing you're talking about. And I mean, I would piggyback on what you said by also saying, I think fiscal sponsorship is a great tool if you are unsure about the success you're going to have, um, any sort of uncertainty, which I don't think people have enough of, sadly, which is why nonprofits pop up left and right, and they have no clue how much work it is to actually, you know, run a nonprofit well. But, but fiscal sponsorship, like you talk about your board being evenly split, like maybe you start with fiscal sponsorship. It doesn't mean you're stuck in that model forever. It's a foray into doing what you want to do. So you could do it for, I don't know, a couple of years and kind of learn through that process and maybe learn also some best practices and, and see what your sponsor, you know, your fiscal sponsor organization that that is your sponsor, what they're guiding you to do. And obviously you're you're learning a little bit more about how a nonprofit, you know, needs to operate the things that need to be thought of. So, so it's also kind of an educational thing just behind the scenes in some ways of, of seeing what needs to be done. Um, and then, I, you know, the other guideline I would say would be sort of just the efficiency or like being able to focus on doing what you love instead of the administration and running the nonprofit part. Because most of the time, just like small businesses, you talk to nonprofit founders and they go, oh, I'm an expert in X, right? I'm a zoologist. So I created this, you know, zoo nonprofit and I have, um, you know, and we're doing X, Y, Z or whatever this, you know, random idea is, or they're an expert, you know, they're, they're a dentist, they're a, you name it, you name it, right? Like whatever. And they, and they love doing that work. Right, for people who need it, but they really don't love running their business. So to me, you really got to have a heart-to-heart discussion with your board saying, do we want to be doing this stuff like, you know, contribution tax receipt letters and annual tax filings and the annual filings just to, you know, keep our with Secretary of State and just all the other litany of things and having regular board meetings and having the board minutes for these meetings and just the whole list. Like, do, do you really want to do all of that piece or do you really want to spend more of your time um, on kind of the actual program implementation? And, and of course the fundraising probably behind that as well. But, but to me, that would be another kind of checkpoint to ask. Um, and then I guess, I don't know if this is a guideline, but more of a thing, a caution, I think is a lack of control. Um, you do you do lose some control when you are sponsored by another organization because of what what Andy shared about basically borrowing their 501c3 status. Um, I mean, you are one considered one legal entity by the IRS. So your actions impact that organization and that organization's impact uh, actions impact yours. So you want to obviously partner with someone who's a sound partner. Um, they're probably scrutinizing the partnership with you because they have candidly more to lose if it doesn't work out. And, and so if they ultimately say, no, you can't do X, which is probably good guidance because there's probably a good reason for it, but, but you're limited to that then. 
Um, or if perhaps you and this other organization are both, you know, going after the same grant and that organization says, no, we already are going after it for another program that's like yours. Um, you're kind of stuck. So I think that control thing is probably the downside of it, but the upsides are the other things, right? Like the time, the speed, being able to fundraise and, you know, sooner than having to wait, whatever, four, six months for IRS to get back to you with your tax exempt status, you know, being able to kind of focus more on, on the, the work itself um, instead of the administration of it. I think those are all, all considerations or guidelines I would give. Um, I don't know, Andy, am I missing anything you think? No, it's just one tiny point of clarification is that once you submit your your 1023, so if you're going to go get the 51C3, you can actually start fundraising before you get the letter back from the IRS. True. You should just let your donors know that, hey, we don't have our tax exempt stuff yet, uh, our official 51C3 yet. So there's a chance that your donation might not be um, tax deductible, but, but it's not, you can't, um, it's not like preventing you from doing that. But then the only other thing is like, I, I can't wait to hear one day somebody's going to call me up and say, I want to start up a, a nonprofit because I really, really love setting up complicated charts of accounts in QuickBooks. That's, that's my, you know, I'm not a zoologist <laughs> with an animal welfare charity. I just, I love, I love setting up QuickBooks. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And, you know, my, the other one thing I wanted to say is getting this stuff in writing. I'm sure I'm sure the the person who wrote this question is thinking of that, but I do think you obviously need a written agreement, MOU. Here's what services your your sponsor organization is going to provide you for X amount of dollars. Here's what how your relationship's going to work because you are in many ways attached to the hit. So you want to be clear on that and have it in writing. Thanks. You've made it to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. As always, thank you for listening. Um, if you have any questions, if anything we talked about today piqued your interest or struck a chord or made you wonder about something different, go ahead and send us that. You can email us that question. You can go to the Nonprofit Everything website and submit it there. Uh, track us down on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, just look for Nonprofit Everything. That's it's just sort of shows up in a Google search, so it's not that hard to find us. Uh, send us a question. Send, include your address, and we will send you a nonprofit, a brand new limited edition Nonprofit Everything sticker, uh, just as an incentive. And thanks for joining us today. Mm-hmm.